Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Today, our guest is Paul Churchill. He is the host of the Recovery Elevator podcast. He is going to share his story of recovery from alcohol and anxiety. Paul shares a little bit of his story of how he had to switch his thinking in order to really build a life, consciously build a life that he enjoyed, wanted, and thrived in. I really enjoyed talking with Paul, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as well. So let's start it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Paul Churchill, and he is the host of Recovery Elevator. And Paul, introduce yourself. Hey, Dwayne. What's up, my man? How are you doing? Uh, Good, good. Yeah, good. It's great to be here with you. So my name is Paul Churchill. And like you said, I am the, the host and founder of Recovery Elevator. This is a platform that I think saved my life in 2014. It's an idea I had when I was about two months away from alcohol. I was going into a meeting and I said the three most dangerous words that I think someone with a drinking problem can say. And that's, I got this. <laughs> I don't need to go to this meeting. And, you know, I remember the shame and the stigma. I was hiding behind a tree and I was about to go back in my car because I had it all figured out, Dwayne. I was two months away from alcohol and, and I just right. stopped in my tracks. There was like this moment where I knew if I didn't do something different, radically different than I, I was going to be toast because the summer of 2014 got pretty grim and we'll cover that later. But, uh, and in short, I went into that meeting and then the following three months after that, I mapped out recovery elevator in my mind. I did a 5,000 mile road trip, 
just to think it through. And I launched that podcast, uh, that project on February 25th was my first episode in 2015. It was risky to launch that with about yeah. five to six months away from alcohol, but it was a gamble that it was calculated and uh, it saved my life. I, I really do believe that. So it's great to be here with you, Dwayne. It's opened up a lot of doors and I've met a lot of great people like yourself. And yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. I'm so excited to talk to you because I have listening to some of your TED Talks and some of your episodes. I have, a, I have a lot of questions to ask you that I think for people who are struggling, particularly with alcohol, might be a little bit different than some other substances, similar but different. And so I have a ton of questions about that and we'll get into that as well. But first, I kind of want to hear a little bit of your story getting there like getting to that place and how that started to develop for you. Sure. Sure. And, and real quick, I, I'm, I'm going to mention that I, I feel addictions are many things, but to simplify them, they represent parts of our personalities that are out of balance, that it represents part of our, our body, our mind and soul and our spirit that need a lot of attention that were perhaps neglected in childhood. And as we continue using these external substances, these imbalances get louder and louder and louder until they have to be dealt with. We, we have no options. So, right. Um, yeah. All right. So I'll, so I'll back it up a bit. I was a normal drinker for about seven years from probably age 15 to, to 21, 22. And during that phase, I remember what it's like to say, you know, Hey guys, I got to work tomorrow morning. I'm only going to have one drink or two, or I'm not going to drink for a week. And who really cares? I didn't even think about it. Right. Um, but after I graduated college, I love to party. And a better way to say that it was, I love the substance alcohol or the drug alcohol that let me overcome my insecurities and fears. Uh, I had a lonely right. childhood and I, I could talk to girls. I was funny. Well, kind of funny. Um, <laughs> well, you yeah. thought you were funny. <laughs> For sure. And alcohol was a self-medicating elixir and it, it worked wonders. It just, the problem was it wasn't sustainable. And at age 21 or 22, when I graduated college, I had a job in finance and I said, no way. And I moved right, home to right. Colorado and I saved up a bunch of money and I moved to Granada, Spain and bought a bar. Now, looking back, I already had a couple feet in the, uh, the, the waters of alcoholic drinking. And so moving to an, a foreign country with a drinking problem to buy a bar in Spain at, at a young age, I, I mean, it, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes or like I need a magic eight ball to figure out what's going to happen. Yeah. And it was a total dumpster fire. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you a question about that. Did anybody around you at that time, when you look back, kind of say, hey, this isn't a good idea? Or were you still at that stage where it was still considered normal drinking or it was well enough hidden and no one really knew? Yeah. You know, looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Um, it, but nobody knew I had a drinking problem at that time, including myself. There was right. a lot of justification. You know, well, I'm 22. I should be blacking out a lot. I should be drinking this amount because <laughs> right. all my right. friends are. Yeah, you know, my mom did raise some very valid concerns and questions. And I said, thank you for your input, but I'm young and I'm going to go make the mistakes and I'm going to go learn. And I don't regret that time in Spain at all. It was the best and the worst time of my life. Uh, the people I met, the, the places I traveled. I mean, imagine owning your own restaurant, bar, tapas bar in Spain. It was it was wonderful. But it, it became difficult too at the end when I was isolating myself. I'd lock myself in my room for a couple of days and just black out and drink. And the the tipping point came at the very end when I blacked out for like three days straight and I had done a bunch of Ambien and drank a ton of alcohol. And I recognized that I was I was tiptoeing with life and death. 
Um, right. you know, a lot of people, their nervous system is so calm on Ambien, they just die. They stop breathing. So I walked away from the bar in Spain, uh, that coupled with intense anxiety. It was just like, this is not working. The body was shutting down. And so I did the geographical cure back to Colorado and it worked for a bit. I didn't drink quite as much, but there was still something off. And so I said, grad school is going to solve this. And I moved to Seattle, Washington. Um, <laughs> right. Grad yeah. school. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And it, and, it, and it did like these, these weren't mistakes. Like they were still healthy and positive decisions. Like if you're grappling with a drinking problem, you got to take action. Even if it's not, I'm going to address the drinking problem, you still need to take appropriate healthy action. Right. And like you said, at the very beginning, you've got this undercurrent of stuff kind of going on with the anxiety or your, your, your personality parts that are need attention that aren't getting attention are starting to play out. It sounds like. Definitely. And when I drank, the anxiety went away. <laughs> the problem is when there was no alcohol in the system, what's up anxiety you know, times that by 10. Um, right. And it's a real dangerous cycle that we can get on where we have intense anxiety, alcohol relieves it. And then when alcohol goes away, there's more anxiety, right? Right. And it's even worse. Yeah, without a doubt. And then on, on January 1st, 2010, I decided to go a month without alcohol. And about 25 days in, Dwayne, I was physically healing. Like I was losing weight. I could run further. I just felt better. And I said, ah, I think I'm going to keep this going. And I went two and a half years without alcohol. Wow. Looking back, like it was an incredible accomplishment. And that time is always logged. It never goes away. But Dwayne, I wasn't doing anything. I was just staying away from alcohol. And, you know, viewing life without alcohol as a, as a sacrifice, your time's limited. Because I was, I was going for it on willpower. And that's right. Finite. Right. Eventually is what happened. You know, I, I drank. And the first night drinking after two and a half years away from alcohol, I drank everything in the house, including my roommate's bottle of champagne from his wedding that he was probably planning on saving the rest of his life. And um, <laughs> I drank everything. And then the liquor stores were closed. And so I started Googling at 2.30 in the morning if I could drink rubbing alcohol or hydrogen peroxide to keep the party going, the party of one, keep that party going. And luckily, Dr. Google was like, please do not drink any of these two because it will mess you up. And I woke up the wow. next day, Dwayne, and I was like, holy shit, I, what the hell happened? I got to get back on this. And then I went 10 months, then I had four months, then I had three, then I had one, then I had two, then I had 30 days, then I had eight days. And then it became, in 2014, Dwayne, this day one cycle of shame, guilt, and I lost hope there for a bit. Um, and, right. and that is the most demoralizing feeling. And I just want to let listeners know out there, like I, I had that hopelessness feeling where the idea of suicide came into my mind. I acted on it. Thankfully, it didn't work, but I made it past that. And here I am almost seven years later after that. But that summer got really ugly. I had a DUI while driving to work, plenty of rock bottoms, but it, all that stuff had to happen. Like uh, those, without those pain moments, I don't make the decision to quit drinking. I'm still on the fence, right? So I'm thankful for all of it. I don't believe something malfunctioned. I believe that the addiction served a purpose and that uh, you flexed me to move forward in life without that substance and to go internal instead of instead of going external for that happiness and, and, and support. Right. Yeah. And, and I think you're talking about that really, really dark space, that shame that you, you feel all that shame because you're going back and forth trying to stop and trying to change it and you're not. And then the stigma also comes up about it. You know, I'm not supposed to have a problem. I, sh I shouldn't have a problem. And then you're stuck in that cycle. It's just a, such a dark space. Yeah, it's, it's brutal. 
In fact, I, I can't think of a worse feeling when you're sitting there and there, you've lost all hope. You know, at the same time with that, Dwayne, there's a lot of work that can be done because I did a podcast episode a couple of years ago called Hope is the Problem. And it sounds strange to, to say that, but hope is constantly looking into the future for a better world. And, right. and that's a trap in itself. So in essence, when you have lost all hope and you really come crashing down into the present moment, in fact, that's where the bulk of the recovery work happens in this present yep. moment. But still, it's not fun to lose hope. You know, I didn't know all that at that time. It was like, oh, shit, like I'm, I'm toast. This is not going to work. But I just kept on going. There was something inside of me that switched. I remember that summer, instead of waking up and saying, I can do this, I had a flip. I said, wait a second, I am doing this. Like, yeah, I've tried to quit drinking 100 days in a row. And I've been on day one 100 days in a row, but I'm doing this. And so I kept, I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but now I know I just kept putting energy and momentum around the idea, around the idea of an alcohol-free life. And that idea just kept gaining energy and momentum. And sooner or later, the alcohol-free life, that was an idea, it overpowered the addiction and it, it just, it happened. And I had a really rough, on September, I think it was end of, end of August in 2014, I was a wedding DJ and I drove to the wedding drunk, I DJed the wedding drunk. Well, I actually didn't finish the wedding. I knew there was no way I was going to finish the wedding. A cocktail hour, I think I had four or five glasses of wine, and I made a smart decision. I called another DJ of mine who just finished a nonprofit event. He came over, finished it. They got a ride home, and I fully surrendered that night. I thought I was going to rehab. I called my parents and all this stuff. And the next wow. day when they called back, something, something was different, Dwayne. I said, you know, I don't need to go to treatment now, but like, give me one more day. Give me two more days. Give me, and then each day... I didn't need to go because I fully surrendered. And, and another way to say that is I stopped fighting. <laughs> I, thought, I was like, hey, there's no more ideas of normal drinking. Like there, there's no way I'm going to be able to, to moderately drink. There's, there's, there's just no way. There's a body of evidence ample enough to disprove any of those thoughts. It's kind of like that acceptance switch changes your whole mindset when you're in that. You, you got to have that pain sometimes, even though it's so hard and it, it sucks and it's, it's miserable, but without it, it's hard to have that switch to move into that new direction. Yeah. Great way of saying that. I'm very thankful for those deep internal moments of pain in 2014 that I, that I built off that I, that I never forgot. Hey, hopefully I'm, I'm never going to go back to that. I don't know. It could happen. And if so, I've got the recovery elevator audience and, and the community to support me. And that's okay. I'm, not, I'm never going to say I'm not going to drink again, Dwayne. We've seen those examples where people with multiple right. years go back out and, and that's, that's okay. I feel like there's more lessons to be learned if that's the case. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to, and I'm, I'm actually, I'm enjoying the time away from alcohol and the future is optimistic. It's bright. Without alcohol, I feel like I can create nearly anything. I'm the creator of my life. It didn't happen on day one away from alcohol, Dwayne. I, I feel like the first year is, is really getting grounded again. I think when we're fully addicted, our energies are they're scattered. There's this massive splat internally. And that first year, or at least the first 30, 60, 90 days is really coming back down to earth, finding the breath and in retraining those habits of, you know, when there's a difficult moment that no, I'm not going to go to alcohol. I might escape with a run or with going to the gym or something, or maybe it's ice cream for the first year or 10. That's okay. Right. right. Something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ice cream hasn't quite ruined my life yet. 
and I'm cool with that. And it, I feel like it's it's almost downgrading addictions or downgrading actions that aren't quite beneficial to our inner child or to our to our health. But that's okay as long as it's not alcohol and other things that aren't destroying me overnight. Then that's progress. Yeah, and sometimes you know when we're in a lot of pain, you know we need to have some kind of healthy distraction from that. Or maybe not so healthy, but not so so harmful either. I think that's that's part of learning to roll with our own internal emotions and conflicts and emotion, you know, emotions, overwhelm, whatever it is. Yeah. And Dwayne, there's there's a phrase I, I didn't make it up, but I absolutely love it. It's it's you know, we're not we're not staying away from alcohol, but we're creating a life where alcohol is no longer needed. And I feel a lot of these addictions especially in modern society, they're adaptive behaviors. In fact, I read a line in, in Dr. Gaber Mate's book in the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which said, most anthropologists agree, and prior to modern times, there's, there's not much of a record of addiction. And that can also be said with depression, anxiety, autoimmune disorders, cancers, inflammations, is a lot of these you know, health conditions or, or adaptations or representations of an environment that, that's out of balance. And so I've really been trying to be an active creator in my life to put myself in situations you know, where I live, like the air I breathe, the food I eat, the people I hang out with, the views I have when I open up my door in the morning to put myself in an environment where I don't need alcohol to, to live or to, to pacify these inner pains. It's, I think the way we're currently living right now, even though it's, it's accepted across the globe, it's, it's absolutely insane. And it's, we've never been further off of, of how human beings are supposed to live. Yeah, I, I can totally agree with that. I, I think, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about what you had said earlier, you know, you were in this fight, you're fighting, 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 and then you surrendered. And I think it's when we surrender that we get out of that fight stance that we can start to participate in our life and craft our life, if that makes sense. Instead of if we're, if we're constantly fighting, we're not really conscious of what we're doing. We're just fighting. Yeah, I like how you said that, Dwayne. There's a universal energy. I don't, I don't have it figured out, but there's a flow. There's almost a natural flow and pace of how the universe works. And when you're going against that energy, you know, there's another metaphor going up the river, <laughs> like, right? Right. You're, right. you're paddling upstream and it's hard and it's, it's, it doesn't work. And I feel an addiction, which I feel it has a purpose. This is called endowment theory in biology is in everything serves a purpose. It's forcing us to, to connect within and also with the tribe, with, with the community. And when we're fighting it, it's, it's painful and it, it's, it's a fight we're not going to win. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such a struggle. It, it doesn't work. We'll lose eventually. We run out. We're not energy. We have to go to we have to pull out some external resource or something, which could be an addiction of, of some sort to be able to try and do that. And it's just not fun to live that way. It's it's so hard. Yeah, I totally agree. So I had a question. One of the things that you are a big advocate for is ending the the stigma of getting help for addiction or addiction itself or alcoholism, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and the stigma and how that impacted you getting help and getting support and how you help with that. Okay. Yeah. Good question, Dwayne. So there's, there's two parts of the stigma. One, it's true. And the other one, it's fake. I think on the grand scheme of things, there is a, there is a stigma. You know, we are we're a society cultured, you just turn on the TV. I forget the stat, like we see 
dozens of alcohol advertisements every day, just TV, billboard, internet, things like that. So it's almost like there is a stigma. We should be able to drink normally, do all these things normally, but there's so many of us who can't. And they're also, I've done this exercise when I talk to schools, I'll write the word alcoholic on the board and, you know, hey, what words come to mind? And, uh, you know, studies show roughly only 5% of alcoholics fit that bill. This is like, you know, homeless, living under a bridge, drinking out of a brown bag. I mean, that's 5%. Right. The other 95% are highly functional, high earners. They're in relationships. They're probably sitting yep. next to you at work. Um, and they're wonderful, loving people. Even the 5% under the bridge are wonderful, loving people. So that stigma, yeah, it, it's out there. And campaigns like the Just Say No campaign in the 80s, it didn't help at all, right? Yeah. It's like, hey, we warned you, but it's your fault you said yes due to – you said yes to a drug that's going to help you feel better because all this trauma and shared energy and pain that's been transmuted for generations, right? But it's your fault. It's kind of that uh, that idea of you know you have complete free will over all of your choices and you're not influenced by your history, trauma, your internal biology, all of that. It's like you should be in total control and it's your fault. For sure. Yeah, like we're all robots with the same circuitry. It's not true. Yeah, exactly. And then the part that's fake is the stigma on the micro level. It's when you tell people that you quit drinking. I mean, and, and I've, you can use me. I mean, I haven't told the whole world I quit drinking, but thousands and thousands of people with the podcast, even individually, just right. my line of work. And the response is incredibly supportive because overall human beings, they're wired to help. And most human beings are really good people. Like if you tell somebody, Hey, I made a decision to quit drinking because it's better for my health. Like 99 out of a hundred people are going to say, wow, Paul, Hey, how can I help? Good job. Right. Right. And then that 1%, or that one person, that's somebody that's an instant flag that you don't want to be around this person. It's just it's not a true friend. And so it still works for you 100% of the time. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and so I think the stigma in the micro level and even at the macro level is it's not true. And the stigma is internally as well. It's all like we almost believe the stigma because we don't want to quit drinking. There's a big part of us that says, yes, oh my gosh, alcohol is ruining my life. But then there's the unconscious, the, the part of us that's like, well, how are we going to live life without alcohol? It's like it's so far out of the out of the comfort zone. It's not even in the known circuitry. So we almost play these narratives like, oh, like no one's going to like me. I'm not going to have any friends. And none of that stuff is true. I just can't live with my pain. I can't live with my anxiety. There's no way I'm going to cope. I'm going to be here forever. And it, and it is that's that back and forth. So getting over that stigma, because I think that stigma keeps so many people from reaching out for help or getting support. We need community. Yeah. So so the good news in, in 2021, guys like yourself, you know, I've got a similar project that you know, in social media, there are so many people coming out and burning yeah. the ships saying, wait a second, alcohol has ruined aspects of my life or this is not working the opioid epidemic and it, 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 like we're, we're starting to come around to see what it really is. So the stigma is softening. Thank goodness. Um, there are sober bars opening up across the country and the world, not necessarily for, for people who have a drinking problem, but there's a large majority of people that don't want to be in an environment where consciousness is dipped, where people are slurring yeah. their words and people are fighting, people are cheating. 
Uh, it's, it's just, it's not fun to be in those environments. The body doesn't feel good. So I do feel like there's this wave that is happening where people are, yeah, they're going internal and saying like, this is not working. There's mindfulness and meditation. I don't feel this wave is happening because it's a fad or it's fun. I feel like we've never been in more pain as a society and we're starting to deal with it. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's part of why we're seeing all of this kind of chaos come up is because we're we're starting to have to deal with some of society's things that have been repressed for a long time. And I think that just kind of flows up and, and there's tons of conflict as we figure that out. For sure. Yeah. And I've, I'm reading a book now about native cultures and they they viewed a sick person within the community as like a canary in the mine. And they thanked the sick person for letting the community know that something was out of balance within the community. And so anxiety, depression, addiction, we aren't separate from the community. We are representations that something is majorly out of balance within yeah. the community. And right now we're, we're a global community. Uh, we can't hide it anymore. And, and we have to come together as a community entirely. This is people that grapple with an addiction and normal drinkers and address this because it is a societal issue. And it's not the issue for just the addict or the alcoholic. And it's not even really their fault. A lot of this, like I said, is generational passed down trauma, passed down learnings from their parents. I don't, I can't shame myself. I found a way to survive. Alcohol worked really well. It did. Like I'm still alive at 39 and alcohol helped me a lot there. It wasn't sustainable. I mean, it would have killed me at right. the end. And, and I recognize that and I found better ways to, to live life without it. Yeah. So that really talks to the need for community as part of this healing process that we need others to be able to walk through this and we need to help others and they need to help us. I kind of call it the merry-go-round of support. You know, <laughs> we keep going around helping each other, but really I think that's how we, we heal, we grow internally ourselves and all the people around us. Duane, you, you, you nailed it, right? Addiction is complicated. How to depart from addiction is complicated. You know, hundreds of thousands of books right. have been written, but it can also be this simple as it's, it's community and accountability. In fact, I think that's the main purpose of an addiction is to push us back towards the middle of the pack because we are on the periphery of the tribe struggling and isolating. And the addiction is there to push us back into the support system of the tribe, of, of the community where we can survive and thrive. And what I, it's almost a formula that I have witnessed over and over and over to be successful is number one, burning the ships. And what I mean by that is having those one way conversations. Most importantly, it has to happen with yourself that yes, I want to quit drinking. And then you have that other, have that conversation with a therapist, a family member, a friend. I, I recommend your wife, your spouse, your brother, your sister, like the people closest to you that inevitably creates accountability. And with that accountability, it comes community. So A, you open up, B, creates accountability, C, that creates community. And that's kind of the formula that we try to replicate with RE, with our individual communities is, is kind of in our courses, kind of walk people through that progress. And at our retreats, Dwayne, sure we do, we have workshops and retreats. We have the, we have your normal right. things like meditation, mindfulness, yoga, breath work, and we get really creative too. We do sound healing, nature hikes, but really it's like adult summer camp for kids where we get a hundred people together in the forest and yeah, we talk about drinking for a little bit, but at the end, you're going to say two things. You're going to say, wait a second. Like I didn't really think about my addiction or drinking at all. And that was a lot of fun. 
So it's like we're taking our mental energies out of it. And where you place your energy is what you get back. And if you place your mental energies in the addiction, in the story, in the problem, it's really hard to depart from that. But if you put your mental energies into connections with other people, making plans with sober people in the future, then there's like this flower that just blooms and it's so fun to see. And it's amazing to witness that. One of the things that I see a lot is when someone is struggling with with alcoholism or some addiction, they have so much shame. There's a lot of shame there that reaching out, like they can hear that, like, yeah, I should go have community. I should go have all, I should do all these things. But then their shame, like they want to go do it. And then their shame says, don't do it. Don't stay, stay alone, stay isolated, stay alone. Don't, don't, uh, don't reach out. You know, and they get stuck in that part. Yeah. And I'd be lying to you if I said I, I hadn't been stuck in those narratives myself. Right. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I think when we quit drinking, that's the first part. And then the, the second part is dealing with the mind and the thoughts. And, and, a, and a, a big milestone there is recognizing that you aren't that narrative. Um, that's a voice in the head mm-hmm. um, that had this voice that probably served a purpose. It probably kept you safe in childhood of, yeah, let's not run full speed into the group. Like, let's let's be cautious here. Yeah. And, and yeah. it served a purpose. But you know, in your thirties and forties, the narrative of saying, I'm not worth it. I'm lonely. I don't deserve connection. Like that's, that's not healthy. And it's, it's challenging those narratives one thought at a time and slowly baby stepping it back into the community. And there are so many people out there that will care about you and care about you, you know, knowing there are trustworthy people out there that can walk you through all of that early trauma, that stuff that keeps you stuck. If it's shame, guilt, anxiety, whatever, there there are people you can trust that will will walk you through that process of shifting that and changing that. Yeah, and, and I love how you said that, Dwayne. And listen to this: somebody you can trust who's probably quit drinking before you, ideally, can walk you through this process. It it can be fun. It doesn't it doesn't have to suck, right? And like, yeah, oh, I yeah. met with somebody for a year every Wednesday at noon at a coffee shop. And we just hung out, kicked it, had right. fun and laughed. And, and again, that's the kind of the formula we're trying to create at RE, Recovery Elevator, is ways to have fun while walking this path together and with others who have already walked the path. Yeah. And you don't have to do it alone. Yeah. And you don't have to and you can't <laughs> do it yeah, alone. You can't. That's right. You, yeah. I mean, you don't have to, but yeah, you're not, it's probably going to be harder to have success just on your own. You've probably, most people who are struggling with some kind of pain or shame or whatever have tried that already. Yeah. Uh, it and, doesn't and, work. And Duane, we've heard tons of acceptance speeches or, or like, you know, Hey, you hit one year of sobriety, like speech, 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 you know, or like at a meeting, uh-huh. what you never hear Duane, like I've never heard this is, you know, yeah, guys, I just, yeah, I locked myself in the closet or locked myself in the room for a week, <laughs> a pen, a paper. And I just like journaled and I just figured it out. I just thought it through and I'm good. Like you never, you never hear that. I'm good to go. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. the acceptance speech heard by no one has ever, ever said yeah. it. But what you do hear is, oh, you know, like I go, I'd like to thank and then 50 people, right? I like to thank this person, the family. It's just like, it's no brainer of yeah. what needs I mean, to happen. We, I, I just feel as human beings, we thrive when we have connection. We just thrive, you know? And if we've had the childhood wounds that counteract that, make it fearful to have connection because of maybe some history or childhood trauma, then then 
you, you know, you work through that and, and you learn that, yeah, I, I can thrive in this. Yeah, you, you thrive. we thrive in that environment because we're wired that way. Like yeah. I have really dull teeth and I have really, uh, I think I'm strong, but like and compared to nature, I have really weak and flabby arms and I can't, I can't outrun a bear or anything. And so nope. the only way we can be successful as a species is by working together in groups uh, with people. That's how we're wired. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think as a society, we're in that, I hope in that process of figuring that out, how do we all come together to be able to help each other and, and, and create a, a better world for everybody in it? Yeah, Dwayne, you, you lobbed one over the plate for me there and I got to take it because I have this theory and I could be wrong. And I think I'll find out in my lifetime if I'm, if I'm right or wrong, there's anything to this is you just said we have to figure out as a society, you know, to come together because I, I live in America and we've never been more divided. It's, yeah, it's it, it's painful to see. It really is. Yeah. But, you know, and, OK, and we often think the addict or the alcoholic is like at the back of the societal cue, like we fucked up or sorry if I can't say that word. Um, That's fine. Yeah. Like, but we have done the one thing that the rest of America and a lot of this globe can't do and they have to do. And that's we can come together in a room and put all differences aside and we can heal. We can move towards a common goal. Um, I mean, what we are able to do in the rooms of AA, in, in, in your community, in our community, is quite remarkable. And we need to give ourselves way more credit for it. In fact, I think, I think we are the first ones to, to cross this river of consciousness. As the Buddha said, we all must cross the river in consciousness. I think we're the first wave. And everybody is going to be grappling with some sort of inner narrative or inner addiction, uh, whether it's alcohol, yep. gambling, TV, sugar, sex, uh, any of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, Paul, I, I totally agree with you. I have that feeling too. So you're definitely not, not alone in that and have that optimistic outlook that, that we can do it, that, that um, there's, there is that process in us to find that way. Yeah, I tend to be a little on the optimistic side, but that's just, you know, part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think our species needs a lot of love and care and attention right yeah. now. And, and we might be the ones doing the bulk of the work, the, the addicts, right? Um, really yeah. going internal, focusing on ourselves because we, we don't need to fix the climate or the earth. We need to fix ourselves at the individual level. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, definitely. So, Paul, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Before you go, I, I love to ask just like one question. If someone's listening to this podcast and there was one thing you could say to them, maybe they're struggling or maybe they have a loved one struggling, what would you say? Yeah, I would say burn the ships. And, and again, burn what I mean ships. by that is have an authentic, vulnerable conversation with somebody where you're not expecting them to read your mind or fill in the gaps. You, and you schedule it, you sit them down. It's not in passing. Say, hey, this is what's going on. Here's my goal. I'd love the support. That's it. Awesome. Thank you, Paul. Where can people find you if they want more information about you and Recovery Elevator? Where can they find you? Yeah, Dwayne, we've got courses, retreats, sober travel, private membership community. You can go to recoveryelevator.com and Instagram at recoveryelevator. Awesome, Paul. Thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. I totally appreciate it. Yeah, you're the man, Dwayne. Yeah, great stuff. I had a lot of fun with you. All right. Take care. You too. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. 
And don't forget, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please write a review in iTunes or wherever you get your... It really does help people find the podcast and get this information that may be helpful to them. And if you would like to continue the conversation online, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.